Welcome back. I'm Robert Fleming. I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're two of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. This is our weekly podcast, Elder Law Issues. And today, Elizabeth, the issue that we're going to talk about is how to calculate an equitable or even better, an equal division of an estate among multiple beneficiaries. So here's the here's the question. A married couple comes to see us. They're worth, uh, oh, let's just give them some round numbers. They're worth $3 million. They have a million-dollar house because they've been very careful and and, and uh, invested very wisely in real estate. They have a, between them a million dollars in retirement accounts, and they have a million-dollar brokerage account that they've built up over the years. It's not an IRA. It's not a qualified plan account, uh, but it's heavily invested in various stocks and a handful of bonds. They've been reasonably aggressive. And coincidentally, they have three children. Can we make an equal division among their three children? For the moment, let's just assume the three kids are all equally capable. They're about the same age. One of them is married well. One of them is married poorly. One of them is unmarried. They have some kids. Can we make an equal division on the death of both of our clients? Hey, Robert, what do you mean by equal? (laughs) No, that was for you. You have to define equal. (laughs) Well, the reason I ask the question is because equal means something different to everybody. So in, I think, the fact scenario you provided, Robert, you were thinking equal is in a dollar value calculation. And the answer is, well, it depends on what everybody's going to be getting and whether people can agree on things. So, Robert, when we see somebody who dies or a married couple who may die and they only own something like a checking account with $10,000. Well, yeah, we can figure out what expenses need to be paid from that checking account and then whatever remains in the checking account, how to divide that in three equal parts. Sure, Robert, that's that's going to be pretty straightforward numerically speaking if we want to equal calculation. But in your scenario, you talked about real estate, you made reference to some bonds, potentially investments, cash accounts. That's much harder, Robert, because in our scenario, and when we think about counseling people here in Arizona, what we often do is we figure out when we're going to distribute funds from an estate, whether there might be something like an illiquid asset, like a piece of real estate, or maybe a special piece of art, or a car. And in your particular scenario, Robert, I would be saying that one of the first things that the estate representative, the administrator needs to do is actually get an appraisal on that house. Because depending on how much money there is, Robert, in your scenario, we've got ample funds. It may be that one of the beneficiaries wants the actual house towards his or her third of the estate. Wait a minute. The the trust or the will says divide everything three equal ways. How can you give the house to one of the kids? Well, Robert, this goes back to the idea that we would have some kind of appraisal on the house to put a value on the house. Once we have a value on the house, it may be that a beneficiary can have the house, thereby reducing his or her share of the estate, by the value that we put on that house. So, Robert, if a child was set to inherit a third of a $3 million estate, so a million dollars potentially, and the house was valued at, say, $700,000, you could actually say, okay, kid, you're going to get that house, and that's going to represent $700,000 coming out of your share. 
So Robert, when we do that, we then need to recalculate and look at what the additional cash distribution would be to beneficiary B and beneficiary C. So in your scenario, while we have an illiquid asset, we can put a value on it. And then that means that B and C are going to end up getting a little more cash, Robert. And I sort of purposely put a very large retirement account in there precisely because a retirement account isn't worth the same amount as cash or a house or investments, even if it may be valued at that, because it hasn't paid taxes yet and whoever receives it is gonna pay taxes. Oh, it's worse, depending on who receives it, they may pay more or less in taxes. It may even be possible to leave the retirement account to one beneficiary who can arrange to not pay any taxes on it if they're able to stretch out the distribution over a number of years and they don't have other income. So that's a way of saying that the retirement account might actually be worth more to a disabled beneficiary than other assets. Of course, there may be other contrary arguments that the retirement account ties the hands of the, of the uh, disabled beneficiary in ways that the other assets don't. So it's really hard to get to equality. It's, a, it's pretty hard to get to equitable dis- division, which is really what we tell people they probably ought to be shooting for rather than equal division. And Robert, I think when we you use the word equitable, one thing for people to, to remember is, is that there are so many things that are subjective about the evaluation or valuation process of an estate. So what one appraiser, the value that appraiser may put on a house could be totally different than another appraiser. So... Part of the reason that making things equal is hard is because you've got to get everybody on the same page about the value of something. So in my scenario, Robert, where that beneficiary A decided to take the $700,000 house towards her portion of the estate, we would need to make sure that B and C agree that the value of the house would be $700,000. If we don't do that, Robert, then we're going to have a family fight on our hands. And, And I think in your scenario, when we think about what's equitable, oftentimes people are willing to coalesce around that idea, even if it's not an equal kind of calculation. So your beneficiary A, who wants to end up with the house, also happens to be the trustee of the trust. Does that cause any problems? Robert, it absolutely is one more reason that we need to have an independent party making an assessment and determination of the appraisal on the house. And another reason why it's very important for the other beneficiaries with full transparency to receive an accounting and really approve and understand what they would be doing if they gave beneficiary A, the trustee, the house. Um, We have to be very careful that there's nothing like self-dealing going on. So I'm the trustee. I get an appraisal. I choose my appraiser who I've used for other real estate transactions because, uh, because I'm heavily involved in the real estate investment business. And, uh, and after I get the appraisal, the appraiser says, as you suggested, that the house is worth exactly $700,000. So I think I ought to be able to receive it from the estate for $700,000 minus the 7% commission that would be incurred if we were to sell the house. Uh, minus the $50,000 that probably needs to be invested in the house to get it up to saleable condition. And, um, oh, let me think, uh, minus another few thousand dollars for the costs, the carrying costs, if we were to keep it for the six months it would take to sell it. 
Is that okay? I'm sounds the trustee. Like you're, sounds like you're giving yourself some discounts, Robert. Well, but they're all legitimate, aren't they? No, you know, I've got some concerns about those. It's one of the reasons that I would tell you we need to do a proposal for distribution. And the proposal for distribution, our listeners should know, that is a, a legal phrase. It actually means something under the law here in Arizona. Um, and when we give proposals for distribution to beneficiaries, that's an opportunity for each of the beneficiaries to see what the other may receiving, be receiving, how that um, distribution would be made, what the calculations would be around it, and approve that. So in your scenario, Robert, particularly if you were going to recommend that there be any discounts you would give yourself, we have to be very, very, very clear with the other beneficiaries that they have an opportunity to say whether they're uncomfortable with it or whether they agree and approve. What I would tell you from a general standpoint, Robert, when I work with trustees who are also beneficiaries is you can't go back and redo you have to do it right the first time. So Robert, in your scenario, it's critically important that as a trustee, you come forward with these ideas and these calculations early. Don't come back at a later date to me to say, hey, Elizabeth, I hope it was okay. I just transferred the house directly to myself as trustee from trustee to me as a beneficiary, and I figure I'll work the rest out with my siblings. That, Robert, I would say is gonna create a whole lot more trouble when we're trying to do that proposal for distribution. This uh, there are a lot of, of difficulties and and concerns about the way things work out, and I really wanted to focus on the planning end of this. How parents can be thinking about their property being divided, but uh, but your question really uh, raises a follow up question for me, Elizabeth, and that is the client who comes in and says, "I'm the trustee. Uh, the the trust allowed us to make distributions in kind. I've distributed the house to myself. I realize I'm going to have to figure out." The, the value of it, I can straighten that out later. Do you, as their lawyer, have an affirmative duty to call up the other beneficiaries and tell them what's happened? It's a really difficult question, Robert. So remember that the scope of the representation, as we thought about this particular case, would have been from Fleming and Curdy to the trustee in that person's fiduciary capacity. So Robert, just to go back a step and make sure that our listeners know, in the representation that we've carved out at Fleming and Curdy, we would have been explicit with that person that we were not going to be giving legal advice about his or her beneficial interest in the estate. So what's happened in the scenario, Robert, is our client's done an end run around us. And that's one of the big reasons that I always will stop in a case, have a conversation with the client, explain my concerns if I believe the client has um, let's just say, failed to recognize his or her fiduciary duty and explain what I believe the necessary next steps and notifications would be. So in your case, Robert, I'd be saying to our client, client, I don't represent you as a beneficiary and what I've just seen you do as a trustee, that is my business because I am representing you in that capacity and my recommendation is that we go ahead and provide notice. If my client, Robert, the trustee in this case, was not open to that, was not open to notifying the other beneficiaries, then conceivably I might have a duty. I would have a duty because my duty would run indirectly to the other beneficiaries, but I have the duty of confidentiality with my client. So it's kind of a squared off between a rock and a hard place for us, Robert, as attorneys. 
But what I often find is when I explain to a client in that kind of situation that if he or she does not want to file, follow my legal guidance, then the representation is over. Um, people tend to listen, Robert, and we tend to find solutions through the conversation. So in that particular case, before I would fire our client, I'd probably try and give some opportunity to repair things first. So ratchet back to the estate planning client. This married couple came in before any of those uh, of this story developed and said, here are our facts, here are our assets. We want to make an equal division um, among the three kids, five kids, two kids, whatever it is. Um, any advice for them about how to maximize the likelihood that it all works out just fine? Well, I think, Robert, the first conversation I, I'd want to have with them about their stuff was whether or not there were things, assets that were they really wanted to be explicit about distributing to a particular beneficiary. So in your scenario, Robert, if the our client said, yes, we really want beneficiary A, who happens to be our successor trustee, to get the house... My next question for them would be, well, what would the process be to make that determination, that evaluation, put a value on the home? We would talk about those kinds of things so that in their estate plan, there would actually be terms, some direction for the trustee about how to distribute an asset to himself or herself if that was an asset like a piece of real estate. Being able to point to terms in a trust that show, yes, I'm going to receive this piece of real estate, but before I do, we have to have this kind of evaluation on it, or I'm expected to take over these kinds of payments. That helps us, Robert, because when we look at that idea of an equal division, if clients have ever already thought about specific assets and given us terms to distribute those, we can often get to equal or equitable a little bit faster. The other thing about the scenario Robert, that, that you you mentioned being able to meet with people in advance, is we need to make sure that folks understand the administration of an estate will most likely take years. And when I say years, I don't want to scare our listeners, Robert, but it's not uncommon for a pretty simple estate where there's a piece of real estate, there's a checking account, there's a retirement account, and a small brokerage account to take 12 to 18 months to distribute. Um, there are tax reasons for that, but there's also the process that the trustee is going to need to go through before anything can be distributed to begin with. Sounds like it's complicated. That's kind of our standing answer. A lot of the advice we give to clients is based on the fact that it's complicated. It's difficult to achieve an equal distribution. You can try to maximize the, the equitability of the distribution and minimize the conflict. But, uh, but unless you have two beneficiaries and everything is in cash or some very simple scenario, equal distribution is a little bit of a pipe dream. I think that's really the bottom line. You've been listening to me, Robert Fleming, and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, two of the partners at the law firm, Tucson, Arizona law firm of Fleming and Curdy, an elder law firm where we have a weekly podcast called Elder Law Issues, and that's what you've been, I hope, enjoying. We hope you will enjoy it again next week. Talk with you then.